welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Richard Oye from the C.S. Mott Children's Hospital at the University of Michigan regarding his thoughts on single ventricle palliation, including preoperative workup, intraoperative strategies, and postoperative management of each stage in single ventricle palliation. Dr. Oye is the Chief of the Division of Pediatric Cardiac Surgery under the Department of Cardiac Surgery. So Dr. Oye, let's begin. Uh, today we'll have a clinical scenario of a newborn male with a fetal ultrasound diagnosis of mitral atresia and aortic atresia, who is induced at full term. He has normal APGARs and originally is satting in the 90s on room air. Based on this presentation, how would you proceed with your workup? Are there any specific details within the history that you'd be looking for? Well, I think knowing the basic anatomy is obviously important. So these kids usually get an echo early on um, to define the exact anatomy, looking at things like, as you mentioned already, the status of the mitral valve and the aortic valve. Uh, obviously the size of the left ventricle is important, but we're going to presume for the, uh, for this, uh, recording that he does in fact have a diagnosis of hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Um, you often want to know what the ascending aortic size is, not that it's necessarily going to change what you do, um, but uh, it's nice to know what you're getting into as well as the, the uh, status of the arch. Um, you need, of course, to have a patent dextroteriosis to maintain systemic circulation for the baby. Um, so in, in broad terms of the initial management, the child needs to be placed on prostaglandin to keep the patency of the duct. Uh, they need to have adequate um, pulmonary venous drainage, meaning those pulmonary veins that are coming to the left atrium need to be able to get from the left atrium to the right atrium, so they have to have a sufficient uh, atrial septal defect. They may require balloon atrial septostomy if that's restrictive uh, to any significant amount. Um, and then once you sort of know your baseline anatomy and you have the child in a place where they can survive, meaning a patent ductus and a good ASD, um, then it becomes in the in the ICU, in the pre-op setting, a man management uh, of balancing their systemic and uh, pulmonary perfusion. Uh, if you think about it, it's a, it's a complete admixture lesion, so all the red and the blue blood come back to the heart and get pumped out to either the systemic circulation or the pulmonary circulation. And the blood has a choice of which way it wants to go, uh, so you need to sort of balance that out. Um, of course, by nature, they're going to get more pulmonary blood flow than than systemic blood flow because of the lower resistance, and you have to do your best to try to keep that as balanced as you can during the initial period. Um, that may uh, require, or how we do that is by managing really the resistances. You can't uh, you can't dictate it in other ways. Um, initially, so we do it by managing the pulmonary vascular resistance or the systemic vascular resistance in order to keep the the proper balance between the two systems, and that might be uh, to vasodilate the systemic system using something like milrinone. Uh, it may be if you don't have enough pulmonary blood flow, you may use nitric oxide, although it doesn't tend to be that effective in children, but certainly you don't want them, uh, if they're having limited pulmonary blood flow, to be acidotic uh, or the things that increase your pulmonary vascular resistance. So it becomes a game of just balancing resistances in that first, uh, first period of time. Yes, sir. So let's say that we get a postnatal echo that confirms the diagnosis, uh, just as you spoke of. Uh, would there be any other specific laboratory tests uh, that you'd be looking for, genetic markers, and would a cath be re uh, necessary? 
Yeah, uh, in general, just standard things in terms of uh, their evaluation, their history and physical, their lab work, nothing particularly special. Um, it's our bias at Michigan that we like to follow lactates to, as a sort of a marker of systemic perfusion. Um, other centers do other things, follow um, mixed venous gases, which we'll do occasionally, but um, uh, it's not one of our primary means of following these kids. Um, we generally don't cath these kids. Uh, echo is usually sufficient to make the diagnosis. Knowing that they will have multiple stages, what do you typically counsel them on your operative timing? Uh, at, at Michigan, it's our bias to, obviously we do the NOR, the time of birth, and we generally do a stage two operation, which at our center is a hemifontan uh, at four to six months of age. I think uh, most of the kids lately have come in closer to four months than six months. Uh, there obviously are risks inherent in the uh, interstage period. Um, despite having an interstage monitoring program, there's still a percentage of mortality. And I think the intuitively uh, people are starting to go, uh, or the, you know, the cardiologists are starting to refer them over more towards four month than the six month age. So, um, but I tell them usually four to six months of age. Um, the truth of it is most of the mortality interstage is actually early and there's less mortality between four and six months of age, so although it intuitively makes sense earlier in a shorter interstage period is probably better. I don't know that that's really borne out in the literature, um, but that's just sort of been our institutional bias. We then do a lateral tunnel uh, fontan, which we complete between 18 and 24 months of age. Okay. So based on the above scenario and your previous description, we would proceed with the Norwood procedure with this patient. Uh, what basic operative strategies do you recommend for your Norwood procedure? Um, presumably deep hypothermic circulatory arrest. Do you uh, prefer cerebral perfusion? If so, or anterograde, retrograde, or, or not at all? What potential danger areas do you see in this operation? So, uh, you know, I am I, not particularly dogmatic about how you do your Norwood operation as long as you get good results. I mean, there are centers that do uh, it quite differently than I personally do it, but still get survivals, you know, around 90%, which is what you'd expect from an experienced center and what we should all expect for, for anybody doing a Norwood operation, frankly. Um, you know, whether you use a BT shunt or a right ventricle to pulmonary artery shunt, I, I don't, I, I, my own bias is I like the right ventricle to pulmonary shunt, but if you get excellent results with a BT shunt, I have no problem with that. There's many ways to do the, um, the aortic reconstruction, there are different materials to use, there are different techniques, and I think they're all fine. Um, again, you just have to be honest about your own results. Uh, and if, you, I mean, the truth of it is, I personally believe if you're not achieving good results, you need to either change your technique or send the patients elsewhere, just as if it was your own child. Um, as far as uh, deep hypothermic circulatory rest, we still use deep hypothermic circulatory rest at Michigan. Um, we did look at anti-grade cerebral fusion in a retros or in a uh, prospective randomized trial uh, using the techniques of the time, which frankly are a little bit different than they are now. Uh, mostly lower flows were what were used as standard back when we did that study, but we're unable to prove any difference. Um, I have yet to see any really compelling uh, data to show that regional perfusion uh, conveys any significant benefit. Um, but again, at any given center, it's going to be have to be tailored. Um, fortunately, uh, all of us here are relatively quick. Um, most circ rest times are around 30 minutes. Uh, if you have a 60-minute circ rest time, that may be a different story. Maybe those patients benefit from regional perfusion. So um, my bias is as long as you are doing 
well with your results, getting good results, not only for survival, but in terms of neurodevelopment. Um, uh, I'm all for whatever you're doing. Well, let's assume that this patient underwent a very uneventful surgery and postoperatively was transferred to the ICU. Uh, what is your expected postoperative course for this patient, as in total length of stay, frequently encounter complications, and how would you expect to manage them if they were to arise? Well, I, as far as the complications, obviously it's, it's anything uh, that you can expect from cardiac surgery in general, especially a particularly uh, significant surgery uh, like the Norwood operation. I mean, any organ system can take a hit, whether it's the brain with a stroke or uh, or renal failure. Um, if you look at some of the literature about strokes, if you do an MRI on all these patients, 25% of them will have a uh, some evidence of an ischemic insult preoperatively, even before they have their Norwood operation. And in that particular study, um, again, albeit at a single center, uh, with relatively longer circ rest times than we have, or honestly significantly longer, 75% had uh, new ischemic lesions postoperatively. So um, they're not always going to be clinically apparent, but these kids uh, do go through a lot. Um, they often don't make any urine for the first day or two. Uh, you know, there has to be some effect on your kidneys, obviously, as well as all your other body systems. So I think anything can happen. Um, Obviously, infectious complications are also an issue. Uh, some of these kids come back with their chest open, depending on how they're doing hemodynamically. Um, and so you do worry a little bit about wound infections and mediastinitis. Um, so it, it's any of a, a gamut of things. What I tell the parents generally is uh, our length of stay uh, is about 21 days um, on an average. Uh, so that's kind of the ballpark. I tell them anywhere from two to four weeks uh, or as long as it takes to get their baby healthy and home. Um, that's really the goal, it's not any particular time frame, so I try not to get them too fixated on a date because as soon as you get to 22 days, they think that something horrible is going on, so I try to keep them, keeping their eye on the prize, which is taking a healthy baby home at the end, if it takes two weeks or six weeks. Sure. Uh, in particular, do you manage your shunts with any particular type of anticoagulation? Uh, we just use aspirin. Again, there's no compelling literature. In fact, there are literature to show that it, there isn't a difference between, for instance, Coumadin or aspirin alone. Um, obviously, there are newer products now that may change that over time. Um, other things that have changed since that literature are heparin-bonded shunts uh, or heparin-bonded grafts, uh, which that's my, my preference to use if I'm doing a BT shunt. I'm less worried about the RVPA shunts because they're a little bit bigger. I tend to use a five for the average size kid uh, and a six for maybe once you're over three, six kilos or three, eight kilos. So I think there's a little bit less worry with an RVPA shunt than there is for a uh, BT shunt. Some people uh, use saphenous vein grafts uh, for their conduits and that's fine too. Um, and that may also impact your choice of anticoagulation or, and your risk of thrombosis. Um, so uh, to answer the question, we, we use aspirin alone. Um, how do you typically follow your interstage patients? Are they routinely seen in cardiology clinic or you personally see them as in a surgery clinic? Uh, what is your general um, transition preparation? Yeah, so we have a dedicated interstage monitoring program as many uh, the larger centers do. Um, it's staffed by uh, nurse practitioners uh, and the long and the short of it is it's the typical patients go home with a scale 
uh, and a pulse oximeter and they do daily weights and daily saturations and they have uh, a list of things that uh, are meant to act as uh, warning signs and when they should contact us. Um, uh, in addition, before anybody goes home, uh, we have a conference call between their local cardiologist, their pediatrician, uh, and our faculty. Um, that is because uh, about 50% of our patients come from out of region and probably a larger proportion uh, are uh, followed by cardiologists outside of the University of Michigan. So that's uh, been quite important. Um, we also uh, try very hard to educate the parents and empower them. You know, they, it's not uncommon for these kids to, if they go to the ER, to be um, uh, treated incorrectly. Uh, because as, as we know, shunt-dependent kids, uh, their SAT is normally 75, and when they, if they get diarrhea and they're a little uh, fussy, they're a little um, volume depleted, and they come to the ER, and uh, the ER physician gets a SAT of 75, they immediately put the kid on 100%, and then of course they start over-circulating more, uh, so, they get worse and so now they're on a 100% non-rebreather and then the next thing you know um, they're spiraling down and um, in the single ventricle reconstruction trial which enrolled 555 kids uh, undergoing in Norwood um, as study chair I reviewed every single death and it was uh, not uncommon to see that scenario and you can it's like a slow motion car wreck I mean you can see this coming the kid is fussy, has diarrhea or vomiting. You can tell the kids, you know, a little bit of low output and then they throw the kid on 100% oxygen uh, and you can just see this happening. So we try to empower the parents because if the ER physician isn't gonna know the right thing to do, we try to make sure the parents at least know what the right thing to do is. And it's, there was an interesting study actually that asked uh, ER physicians if they understood shunt-dependent physiology and the majority said no. And the second part of the question was, are you, interested in finding out more about central uh, single ventricle physiology and the majority of them said no as well so I think we're we're reliant on the parents at this point uh, to uh, carry that torch. Well let's say our patient successfully navigates the interstage uh, period and returns to see you at five months of age at this point in time some non-invasive hemodynamics are taken which show uh, normal for uh, stage uh, um, hemodynamics and saturations in the high 70s an echo is performed that shows no gradient at the atrioseptal defect or across the, LV, uh, the reconstructed aorta, uh, with the new valve showing no evidence of uh, regurgistenosis. Uh, a catheterization is performed, which shows a low right ventricular and diastolic pressures and a low transpulmonary gradient, with no evidence or minimal evidence of aortopulmonary collaterals. Uh, you previously mentioned that you would offer a, a hemifontan as opposed to a, a glen. Uh, would you go into further detail as to why you choose that? Yeah, well, to take a step back on the preoperative workup just real quickly. Um, so if you take a kid like that who has, uh, their echo looks great, you know, their anatomy's fine, they don't have any, as you said, residual arch obstruction, their neuric valve, their tricuspid valve is working fine, um, good size PAs, good function. Uh, in, a, in some of those patients now, you know, in the past, of course, everybody got cath. Um, in uh, many of those patients now, we'll just get an MR, and which of course doesn't give you um, he, the same hemodynamic data, um, but it does not require, obviously it's non-invasive, doesn't require um, radiation uh, to do that. And even there's a few Fontans now that we feel 
uh, if they're optimal candidates uh, also foregoing a cath at that point, but that is still the minority of the patients for stage three. But um, the reason that we do a hemifontan is because we believe that it has superior uh, fluid dynamics, less energy loss, particularly um, it's not so apparent. So if you look at uh, computer modeling, if you make computer models of a hemifontan and a glen, no matter how you rearrange the glen offset, you know, et cetera, the benefits in terms of less energy loss, you know, and to take a step back, why do you care about energy loss? So you're going to, of course, be asking the single ventricle to pump through both the systemic system and the pulmonary system. So um, energy loss is, is uh, more significant for these kids than a normal two ventricle kids. So we want to minimize energy loss so the blood can flow easily. Um, so that benefit is not so much seen at the stage two operation, but if you compare a lateral tunnel to a glen and an extra cardiac, and again, no matter how you offset the the different methods of trying to uh, minimize any collision of fluids um, for a extra cardiac fontan and a glen, um, there is still uh, significantly less energy loss in the way that we do our hemifontan and our lateral tunnel. Now, with the caveat that not all, well, there are a few centers that do a, a hemifontan or lateral tunnel anymore. Um, but even amongst those centers, uh, the way that we do it is not necessarily the same as, say, the way that um, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia does it. They do a hemi and a lateral tunnel. We do a hemi and a lateral tunnel. Uh, but they're not quite the same. And there ha- have been some studies comparing the CHOP-style uh, hemi-fontana lateral tunnel uh, to Glenn and extracardiac that found no difference. But if you compare the way that we do it to uh, an extracardiac and a... Um, Glenn, there is a significant advantage to it. So uh, the other advantages and disadvantages, so the hemifontan, it is a bigger operation. It's more difficult to do. Uh, it does need cross-clamp, albeit it averages about 10 minutes to, to of cross-clamp time, but it does require cross-clamping the heart. I think the upsides are, is we routinely augment both the right and left pulmonary arteries as a part of that operation. Um, and then it also makes the lateral tunnel a very quick, easy operation. Um, and we would rather have any uh, other reconstruction that you need to do or corrections of, uh, of PA stenoses or just routine augmentation of the PAs during the lateral, or excuse me, during the hemifontan because the post-op period is much easier. It's much less hemodynamically uh, demanding um, than your post-operative fontan. So if you're in our mind, if you're going to have a bigger operation, you'd rather have it at stage two and then make the, the Fontan, uh, again, in our case, lateral tunnel, very quick and easy operation. Obviously, there can be pitfalls with the Hemi-Fontan operation, um, including things like RPA narrowing or uh, SVC torsion. How do you try to maneuver through these to minimize their risks? Yeah, the SVC is usually not much of a problem. Um, to get a little bit in the details, what we do is we uh, spatulate the right pulmonary artery to behind the SVC and we use the SVC, uh, the external aspect of the SVC. We sew that uh, spatulated RPA and so the back of the SVC actually is, serves as a patch to augment the right PA. 
Um, we augment the left PA routinely with a patch of uh, pulmonary allograft, which then also serves as the roof of the hemiplantan. Um, part of the reason we do that, although it seems a bit uh, like a lot of work, is there's cable offsets. So um, the cava never comes in at a, a direct, um, you know, at Glen you can angle it, but it, for all intents and purposes, a 90 degree angle smack, it's a T into the PA. Um, there is offset, the cava lives in front of the PAs and then the blood uh, enters the PA. And it actually, when you have this hemifontan, you can, when you cath them, you see it develops sort of a circular motion of the fluid as it goes around and around and around. And at least the uh, engineers will tell you that fluid going in a circle uh, is an extremely low energy state. Um, and I always think maybe that's why fluid goes down the drain as a circle. I mean, why doesn't fluid just pour down the drain from all different angles straight down? Uh, but it circles around, and I assume that's because it's a lower energy state to go down uh, the drain. So the, 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 I don't know that there's anything special to avoid the pitfalls other than um, to do it right. Uh, it, it is technically harder, but it, it's rarely a problem. Um, we, our patients had some of the, well, not some of had the lowest incidence of left pulmonary artery um, stenosis in the SVR trial. Um, and I think that's because uh, of the way that we choose to do our stage two operation. Is there any particular preference on the patch material that's used to cap your SVC? Well, we use pulmonary allograft. I mean, it's just such nice material, it's compliant. It is, when the hemifontan, it is asked to make some curves uh, it's very nice tissue. Like I said, it's very compliant. It's hemostatic. Um, now that we have decellularized patches, the issue with increasing PRA in a population of patients that may need transplant in the future um, is no longer an issue. Assuming this patient again undergoes a successful stage two procedure and is transferred to the ICU, are there any particular um, complications that you refer or are worried about more with stage two than with stage one? Well, I think, no, I, I think it's, it's um, the things you worry about are, are, are they a good candidate for stage two, meaning do they have uh, low PVR, do they have low end diastolic pressures and that are going to allow uh, blood to easily pass through the lungs and not increase their central venous pressure. You know, of those things, I probably worry more about the diastolic dysfunction because we have very little that we can do for diastolic dysfunction in these kids. Um, there's no, unfortunately, no medicine that we can give um, either in the short term or the long term. At least in the short term, for the pulmonary vascular resistance, we can give oxygen. We can make sure they're not acidotic. Um, we can uh, let their, actually let their carbon dioxide climb a little bit so they have uh, cerebral vasodilation to increase the pulmonary blood flow. We can give nitric oxide. Um, uh, in the long term, we can use other oral agents like sildenafil. Uh, or inhaled agents, so we at least have something that we can try. Um, of all the things I think that are problematic uh, would be diastolic dysfunction. We can fix neo-AI, we can fix the tricuspid valve if, if it's leaking. Systolic function we can support with pressors. Um, so I think the thing that is most problematic is if they have diastolic dysfunction. Yes, sir. Uh, do you routinely extubate in the operating room? Uh, that's our goal on, uh, for our stage twos and stage threes would be uh, extubation in the operating room. Um, I don't know if there's anything special to it uh, that it has to be in the operating room, but I think in general, early extubation is a good thing, particularly in the Fontans, because uh, they are dependent, again, on 
passive flow through their lungs and having positive pressure ventilation uh, clearly limits the, the flow uh, through the Fontan circuit. And the same can, is, can be said for the stage two operation, but it's less critical. So our patient is successfully discharged and goes home, uh, again, uh, manages to navigate the interstage period appropriately and returns uh, in good health at 18 months. Uh, preoperative workup, including echo and in this case cath, although as you mentioned, the possibility of MRI, suggests that he is a stable and good candidate uh, for third stage procedure, uh, which we again mentioned earlier is a lateral tunnel fontan done at this procedure. Uh, any specific operative uh, steps or, or techniques that you would like to discuss regarding the lateral tunnel? Well, I think I think the, the probably the overriding thing is that we just favor a lateral tunnel uh, operation. Um, it's a little hard to do in an audio to describe exactly how the flow goes and to be able to see how when you cat these kids, I mean, they rarely get a cat after their fontan, but to see the laminar flow uh, through a lateral tunnel and a hemi fontan, um, it makes sense that it's low energy. Um, probably the only other things that we do uh, is we routinely fenestrate them with a small fenestration. Um, I don't think that it's as important as it used to be in the past when some of these kids were not such great candidates. The vast majority of them are excellent Fontan candidates and could probably get away without a fenestration for hemodynamic uh, needs. Um, I think there's some literature to support that it decreases the length of chest tube drainage to have a small fenestration. Um, and that's probably the reason that I continue to do it, not because they need it for hemodynamic support. Yes, if they get sick, it sure is nice to have that pop off um, if they have a sudden increase in their pulmonary vascular resistance. Um, but truth be told, I think for the majority of patients, it's hopefully decreasing their length of chest tube drainage. Um, I personally use a 2.8 millimeter aortic punch and the vast majority of them will close over time because it is a small hole. And so I'm hopeful that it's there for the post-op period to help decrease their length of chest tube drainage and then goes away over time. Uh, we do not routinely close the ones that stay open. Uh, with such, with relatively small hole, um, I think that many centers have had this anecdotal experience where they have gone in and closed fenestrations and had the child develop PLE um, and then reopened the fenestration to have it go away again. So our institutional bias is if your fenestration stays open and it's that small hole, you probably need it. It's probably stayed open for a reason. And so unless you're symptomatic, i.e. you are getting blue with exercise or something like that, or have, uh, have emboli, um, we would tend to leave a, um, a patent fenestration open. Uh, you mentioned PLE. Um, are any other long-term um, complications uh, common, and, and what would, would your typical response be to those if they arose? Yeah, I think overall the thing to understand is that there is continued attrition of a couple percent of all these fontans. They are, they are not cured, of course. Um, uh, they are technically palliated, and uh, I think it's particularly appropriate in this group of patients because they, there is attrition, both in terms of, uh, there, there's, there's attrition meaning they die. Uh, there, is, there are certain fraction of patients that will go to transplant, a certain fraction of patients that will get significant complications, um, uh, whether it's arrhythmia, uh, plastic bronchitis, protein-losing enteropathy, um, they are probably all having some degree of um, cirrhosis, of cardiac cirrhosis. Um, the, the central venous pressure is of course higher than normal. Um, I think that we are 
beginning to start to understand some of these things and are working very hard to limit the number of morbidities that happen. I think some of the stuff that um, Yurav Dori is doing at CHOP, uh, understanding the lymphatics of this and how deranged the lymphatics are for these kids uh, is very important work. And certainly at least for a fraction of patients with PLE and plastic bronchitis, he's able to cure them um, by manipulating their lymphatic drainage. And uh, I think we are uh, working very hard to understand the GI uh, effects of Fontan uh, circulation, particularly on the liver. Uh, so I, I think we're advancing um, in those realms, uh, but there still does, there still is a not insignificant uh, morbidity and mortality following the Fontan operation. Um, the other important thing is neurodevelopment. You know, how are these kids doing long term? Um, not only just in neurodevelopment in terms of IQ, but in terms of behavioral uh, things, which uh, are in a family system often more difficult to deal with than if you have an IQ of you know 84. So that's quote unquote abnormal. It's outside of two standard deviations. Um, but I think a child with significant behavioral disorder or problems with higher executive functioning um, and, uh, and an IQ of 100 is probably more problematic than a child with no behavioral problems and good functioning with an IQ of 84. Um, so I think uh, we're trying to understand more about um, neurodevelopment in, in many ways, not just quote-unquote intelligence. Um, and we're, we are at our center and many other centers particularly uh, stressing longitudinal outcomes for these kids and all of our congenital heart kids, but particularly the single ventricle kids. And we have a specific neurodevelopmental clinic that follows these kids long-term. So um, now that we've had survivors, you know, survivorship is very high uh, for, uh, for Fontans. And if you look at all, all single ventricles from day one, survival is pretty good. And so now as survivals have improved, we're, interested in the survivors you know what what yeah we've got now this whole big population of kids out there and we need to understand um, how they're doing and then use that to inform what we do at stage one stage two and stage three so that we can m optimize their long-term outcomes well this has been claude Beatty, the congenital heart surgery fellow at the university of michigan speaking with dr richard oye the chief of pediatric cardiac surgery in the department of cardiac surgery at the university of michigan